I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough everybody welcome to the season six opener of the body serve i'm jonathan and i'm james this is our technically our second episode of the season we first came to you last week with our monica Sellis episode which we are so pleased with how much y'all enjoyed it it seems yeah, i think that's fair to say thank right? you thank you very much for the the nice comments we have set out to do more kind of narrative episodes that require a lot of background research and stuff like that. It's genuinely a lot of fun for us to do, changing up the format. And I hope you all enjoy the subject matter as well. Um, but this is our, our back to normal season preview, recap of the first few weeks, some predictions, some mess. A lot of mess, as it turns out. This first week and a half... Two weeks, really, I guess, of the season have been littered with trash. I'm tired. The The Australian Open has not even started, and so much has happened. There have been so many tantrums during the ATP Cup. The bushfires in Australia have been an absolute horror show, but the tennis authorities, man, they have really struggled. Before we get into all that, we want to start with a bit of an update on the GoFundMe. Thank you all for your uh, just ridiculously generous contributions. Yeah, we're both totally blown away by how it's gone. So we want to give you an update as to what we've done so far, what we are still going to be doing with the GoFundMe, and also let you in on how we're going to distribute some of these prizes that we have said that we've had all along. So it is still technically open, we're not going to be promoting it on social media anymore because we have basically exceeded our goal. Uh, to be honest, we had no idea where to set the goal. No. It was a <laughs> pretty arbitrary one. Essentially, rather than a monetary goal, we wanted to do, as we said earlier in November, we wanted to invest in better equipment. We wanted to travel to tennis tournaments more and be able to devote more time to creating a genuinely high quality product and we've started to that end we've released the monica Sellis episode we have procured a new laptop this is the first episode that we're recording on it we've got a new mic we've got a new amp we booked our trips to miami and berlin already and this is kind of a, a banking on ourselves kind of situation because there is no guarantee that we will be credentialed so uh, it may end up that we have to buy tickets while we're there, but we'll still find a way in that case to make the coverage meaningful for y'all. Right. We're going regardless. Mm -hmm. Like if the press credentials don't come through, we will be in Miami. We'll be in Germany for that new grass court tournament. And the, who knows, we might be at another one undecided. The trouble with uh, booking stuff for tennis tournaments, we've been lucky in, in the past... I guess it's kind of a a two-way street. Lucky in that we are so close to Cincinnati and we can drive. We don't have to rely on plane tickets. And so we can we can wait till the last minute 
to to book something, right? To see if we get credentials. But with these tournaments that are overseas and so far away, you have to get prices when they're good as well. Yeah. I I literally cannot imagine what it's like for a lot of these traveling journalists to have to book last minute. You spend so much more money. So suffice it to say, with the money you so generously contributed, we are extremely thrifty. And Jonathan is like an expert at getting the cheapest prices on everything. So we're making this stretch. In another life, I could have been a travel agent, like maybe 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of obsolete at this point, (laughs) but I make it work for us in our own personal lives. So like you mentioned, the, the GoFundMe will remain open. We have always said that we'd keep it going until the end of the Australian Open. One of the things that that's good for, for us at least, is to to, to plan how we're going to do the prizes and give us time to sort that out. We've got a body serve swag kit kind of thing. You may have seen on social media sometime last year, we had printed a tote bag that you may have seen James with in Sitges while we were there. <laughs> I think we'll tweet that out so you can see what it looks like. So you'll be getting a body serve tote bag that's pretty big. Like we take ours to the beach and it houses stuff for both of us while we're at the beach. You'll also be getting a body serve notepad with or banner at the top. It's it's square. It has 50 sheets, sturdy paper. Honestly, it's the the notepad that I'll be using the rest of my life. I love it so much. <laughs> I wish I could endorse it for myself, but you know, it's we just buy it. Mm. <laughs> And you'll also be getting a body surf pen, which we thought when we were buying it that it would end up being cheap and tacky, but it is not. So for the body surf package, you'll be getting the body surf tote, the body surf notepad, as well as the body surf pen. We also have a set of gorgeous Rizzo prints of Serena Williams and Simona Halep by our wonderful logo designer, Tom Humberstone, who you may have seen published in Racket Magazine. He so generously donated these prints to us as his contribution to the GoFundMe campaign. We also have, as sort of a grand prize, I managed to obtain a certified signed tennis ball by Bianca Andreescu. It comes in a a plastic casing, a square plastic casing. It's untouched. It comes with a certificate of authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's from the Rogers Cup this year. And, you know, through just some magical workings behind the scenes, I managed to get a hold of it. You know, it's the ball that she struck to win the tournament. She did stop. <laughs> That's a, that is not true. <laughs> so how we're going to do this, this may sound stupid. We went back and forth so many times to try and figure this out. If you've contributed $75 or more, you're eligible for the body serve package or the reso print. If your name is drawn, then we'll contact you and you tell us which one you want. If you've contributed $100 or more, then you're eligible for the Andrescu signed ball. If you've already contributed and you really want one of these things or want to be eligible for one of these things, you may contribute, again, the difference if you want. This is by no means like a a cash grab. (laughs) We're mostly trying to figure out what's the most equitable way to try and and do this. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we didn't do like tears on GoFundMe to like 
set up prizes is that we only had like a, a finite number of these things and also there was some language in the in the gofundme fine print that said you were absolutely forbidden from running raffles or prizes on this website which we didn't really know yeah. what that meant so we kind of just uh, launched it thinking that folks weren't contributing to us to get something they were contributing mm. to us as a kind of a, a thank you for the five years and then we would then figure this stuff out after the fact right if you've given fifty dollars you'll be getting a postcard from us only if you send us your home address if you don't want one that's fine but please do connect with us either through the gofundme page through email thebodyserve at gmail.com or through twitter provide us your home address and no matter where you are in the world we will send you that postcard i want to say to that point some folks have said i've reached out to a couple of folks already saying hey you know we want to send you this postcard you're you're owed this postcard and they're like well you know it's I know those are a pain. You don't have to do it, blah, blah, blah. We're actually looking forward to writing a lot of these. Yeah. So please do not think of this as like helping us by not claiming it. We want to do this. We want to express our gratitude. It's a it's a BodyServe custom postcard. <laughs> so you can put it on your fridge and you'll have the logo and, you know, all that stuff. But if you don't want us to have your home address, I totally understand. So... <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the tennis that has happened already this year. The ATP Cup has dominated the men's side of tennis starting in early January. They landed in Perth, did their their whole Tourism Australia photo campaign, uh, the, the Team Spain sort of diving through the water. The Nadal thirst trapping. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was a bit odd considering there were catastrophic bushfires raging across the continent i found it weird i i also understand the profit motive that it is important for the tournament to get tourist dollars in to represent australia in in all of its diversity and all the things it has to offer it was just a little weird tonally the whole event was weird the fact that you're having this grand team event so soon after we ended the previous men's season with the davis cup the fact that the format of it is so similar to Davis Cup. But also impossible to understand. <laughs> Correct. The fact that it went on for so long. This mm-hmm. was the equivalent of a Miami or an Indian Wells in terms of the length of the tournament. Yes, except during the tournament, you basically have to fly from L.A. to New York. Flying cross-continent during the tournament is very strange. And a huge disadvantage to teams who make it from Perth, say, to Sydney or to Brisbane. You also have players not knowing what their workload will be to get to the finish line. You have the two top players in this event, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, playing through to the final. But at the start, they don't know just how much they will have to play. They don't know if they're going to have to play two matches per tie. By the end of it, Novak Djokovic had played, what, nine matches? Uh, Nine doubles? intense matches to start the year. This wasn't just a a happy-go-lucky, let's-have-a-good-old-time Hotman Cup. No. If you saw that match against Denis Shapovalov, both of those guys were red. They looked ragged. Their hair was sticking out. It was extremely humid. And 
Dennis was not far away from winning that match. Obviously, the thing is, like, when people are trying to defend these team events, they're saying, well, these top athletes, they really care. Look at them. They care. Like, when there's points and money involved and players are playing for their country, they always care. They care at Labor Cup. They care at Davis Cup. Like, that's that's not really a metric for me. And also, you have professional athletes in a professional setting. You should expect them to be professional about it. That's not surprising. Right. But my thing here is that the tournament asked a lot of these players in the first event of the year. It sure it sure did. Novak had already uh, entered Adelaide because I think the impression I got is he wasn't sure what kind of preparation the ATP Cup would be. And he played all the way to the final. Serbia won ATP Cup and he pulls out of Adelaide, I guess because he feels he got the necessary match play before Australia. But there were a lot of question marks going in, right? It's it's really difficult to plan your Australian Open, the first major of the year, with this tournament that is mysterious. And, and you really don't know what the matches are going to be like. So these players played a lot. If you went deep into the tournament, you played a lot and at a high level. The fallout for Alex Diminar is that he picks up an injury, has to pull out of Adelaide, and now his Australian Open is in doubt? That's not good. Yeah. There a lot of times they were playing late into the night, like they did at the new Davis Cup. And I understand with the new event, there are going to be hiccups. There are scheduling things that need to be worked out. But in general, yes, this attracted a lot of attention in the media, but it didn't always translate to big audiences in person. Mm-hmm. I just think that the organizers overshot their shot. The ATP did too much for this event, and I can't help but think that that was as a direct response to trying to compete with the Davis Cup and to show your worth in relation to the Davis Cup. And so you're going to have this event in three cities. You're going to cancel the Hotman Cup as a result of it. You're going to relegate the women's Brisbane event to a second class event because of it. You're going to have them play on outer courts for the first four days of that tournament because the men have the main show courts for ATP Cup. Yeah, it's just it's not a good look for tennis. And I know the ATP couldn't care less about that. No. Like, that's that's not their concern. Their concern is promoting men's tennis. But it sucks. It sucks for the rest of us because I would say most tennis fans like both men's and women's tennis. I disagree with that. Really? I th- yeah, I think there's a reason why women's tennis is treated like shit. Because there are a lot of folks who don't mm. think that women's sport in general is worthwhile. And I think that sucks. And I think that's what we see manifested in this. Okay. Because women in sport aren't given nearly the same consideration as do men. And we see that all the time with the right, logistics but... at tournaments, with the uh, like press room availabilities, like which rooms the men get, <laughs> say for Dominic team. The, <laughs> the woman having to wait for men to be done with stuff at joint events. Like, this is just another iteration of that. Yes, but the attendance for WTA Brisbane was great. I'm saying that, I don't know, maybe I'm off base here. Maybe I'm in the Twitter bubble. I think that most tennis fans watch both men's and women's tennis. I think that we are in a body serve bubble. Okay. In that we interact with a lot of folks who interact with us. <laughs> and we are squarely a WTA positive 
enterprise. Sure, sure. Other things going on. A, a lot of people were annoyed by the points distribution at ATP Cup. And I've got to say that I am not one you, of those people. You're not? No. The WTA used to do this quality points thing where you would earn ranking points based on the quality of the player you beat. And I actually think there are a lot of great arguments for that. They don't do it anymore. That's fine mm-hmm. for the top players. I have no issue with that. Okay. But for somebody ranked outside the top 300, that's not equitable. Well, right. Like this but is... if, you beat, if you're outside the top 300 and you beat a top 100 player... Should you not be entitled to more points? Yes, but you're not getting the same number of points as somebody inside the top 100 who beat somebody inside the top 100. that's not fair. They're making more points than if you, as ranked 325, have the biggest win of your life. Mm. That, to me, that's wild. That's that's ridiculous. Like, these players are there. There's a lot of talk as to how arbitrary it is that certain countries get to be there. But when you're there, you're there, right? Yeah. And so if you're there, I don't know how many times I'm going to say there right now, (laughs) but if you're there and you do the business and you win the points, like this is a huge opportunity for you. Why shouldn't you be rewarded equally as somebody who has so much more privilege than you on the ATP tour? Right. And Riley Opelka was maybe not the best vessel for that argument, (laughs) considering he has benefited from many, many wild cards in his past because he's American. And he showed promise as a youngster. But his point is not entirely off base. That there is something inherently inequitable if you are a highly ranked player, but you're not like the top two in your nation. Then you have Stefano Tsitsipas, who is a top 10 player from Greece, who kind of has to bring along this other Greek player who normally has no no opportunity to play against these top players, right? Which is great for him. Like, it's great experience for that guy. His brother being one of them. Right. But when so many ranking points are on the line and money is on the line, is it entirely fair to exclude this whole group of people because they come from uh, a tennis-rich country? And for a made-up event. (laughs) I keep coming back to that. It's a made-up event for a lot of folks to make a lot of money. There's no... I... I, I just struggle with it. I struggle with the tour adding more jingoistic, nationalistic tennis tournaments to the calendar. We, I just God. don't need it. Yeah. And we did see some ugliness on the nationalist front. It's not, uh, it's not my favorite look in tennis. I don't think that we need more competitions where players play on behalf of their country. Think it like we're good. We're saturated. Carlos Bernardes took it upon himself to chastise the Serbian fans, and uh, Mohamed Layani took it a little bit further by actually speaking Serbian to the Serbian fans, which, that, in my opinion, that took it a little across the line because the Serbian fans were not the only ones out of pocket. They certainly were out of pocket, but it wasn't just them. And, you know, to assume that Serbian-Australians our native Serbian speakers, or that they're immigrants, is kind of offensive. Okay. <laughs> you thought a lot about that but one, I Bob. Did, I thought a lot about it. But I am I am also, to be fair, going to say that the atmosphere in the Shapovalov-Djokovic match was terrible, and the crowd was garbage. Period. 
I can't sit here and parse through and say which crowd was worse than the other. I just know that this kind of event creates the conditions for this kind of shit to happen. Yeah. yeah. Which is what I don't like. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sit here and not talk about that. Okay. All right. That's probably the safest. What I will talk about is how when you get all these men together in one broy broy situation, they act a fool without fail every single time. <laughs> why why are they so mad? This is the case with everything in life. You put <laughs> And I and I, I want to be a little bit more specific and uh, maybe discriminatory here, but I don't care. You put a bunch of, say you put 12 straight men in a room together. Stupid shit's going to happen eventually. Give him an hour. <laughs> like, ridiculous stuff is going to start happening. It's not going to be charcuterie boards and cheese, cheese <laughs> and crackers and like... A casual conversation over wine. It's just it's just not going to happen. And so when you put them together in these sporting situations as well, we see the same shit. And so what did we see happen? But uh, this was unique, right? The, the next gen led this. There were so many tantrums. Why are they so mad? There, it wasn't just next gen. It wasn't. It we was had not. Cuevas. Right. He's not next gen. There was just so much pent up aggression. And it wasn't cute. Like... Are we, well, we know we're failing men in terms of not allowing them as a society to express their emotions in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. We know that. Is that what this is? Mm, I don't really, maybe like partly. I also think some of these kids are incredibly privileged and spoiled because how, uh, how else could you behave that way? I say kids on purpose. Well, let's see some of these receipts. So, Stefanos... Okay. In Abu Dhabi, you may have missed this, Stefanos smashed his racket into a courtside chair and obliterated the chair, narrowly missing uh, a lines person. At ATP Cup, he swiped his racket against one of those bollards and then swiped it again and hit his dad. His father was bleeding on his arm. They had words. He left the court. His mother... His mom came down in the stands to yell at Stefanos twice. She leans over the railing and is like giving him an earful. Right. And then he goes in the press conference afterward to say like, I think it's okay. I don't think there was anything really unusual about that situation or particularly wrong uh-huh. necessarily. Like maybe I'll talk to my dad about it and see if he feels any different. And there were a lot of people at home who were like, my dad would have beat my ass if I did that. Around the world, I'm sure there were people thinking that. Like, you you literally injured your dad in public. And what is mind-boggling to me is that, how is that not a default? There, Like, it's, it's bizarre. So you, if you touch a lines person, a volunteer, the chair umpire, it's an automatic default. But if you physically maim... Somebody in your family on court, is is that just like cool? But did the did the umpire see it? Does it matter? No, but no, but listen, did the umpire see it? You saw the father get up to my mind as a means of diffusing the situation. Right. But he got a code for unsportsmanlike conduct. So the umpire either saw or heard of something. 
the tournament at that point the tournament referee has to come down and say this is this is done we don't condone this kind of behavior because it's it's ridiculous no they they don't want this kind of attention part of addressing it and penalizing is putting a spotlight on it and they don't grasp that we see it anyway we are sleuths right, right. we are we have well, <laughs> everybody saw it like it's on twitter when this happened <laughs> the thing that i found so instructive as a contrast it happened right about the same time as coco goff telling her father that he swore in the on-court <laughs> coaching visit mm. by saying the word damn. And it was such a stark contrast in player-father interaction right. on both tours. It was actually really cute. It was really cute. She said, you said the D word. <laughs> and the Stephanos one was anything but cute. I mean, it just, it makes tennis look silly. In, can you imagine if that happened in basketball? That player would be suspended for several games. Like in, in any other major sport, there would be a suspension, there would be a fine. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry, I'm not backing down from that. I don't want you to. I also think it puts into perspective just how fraught familial relationships are in tennis. You have these young people as breadwinners in families, mm. generally speaking. And so Stefanos is a multimillionaire now. Is his father gonna drape him up mm. by, by <laughs> Is that a Jamaicanism? Yes. Is he gonna pull him up by his his shirt and like let him know like that's not okay? Yeah. As our parents would do in regular life. Is Coco Goff's father I don't think that's a good example with her, but like would he react differently to his daughter telling him about the D word in another situation, right, you know, yeah. like these things become weird yeah. for parents as well to have to deal with their kids in these situations because as teenagers, they're, they're the breadwinner. Sure. I don't know how applicable no, I, this is in these situations, but it, it was something that came to mind. I think that's a good point. And a reporter asked Stefanos, like, are you going to be grounded? And it was, it was a joke, obviously, because even if he was still, a minor you're gonna ground a professional tennis player it's ridiculous right like these kids make the money for their family so you do wonder how that changes the family relationship mr medvedev uh-huh he plishkovod the chair umpire twice and what i found particularly disgusting about this situation was that he was interrogating the umpire asking him questions and then he didn't like a response so he chopped the chair. Right. And then he proceeded to ask more questions and he got more responses he didn't like. And so he chopped the chair mm. again. Again, this is Liani. I mean, I don't want to disrespect somebody doing their job, but is this guy asleep at the wheel or what? Liani has just come off a suspension for coaching Nikirios. And I, I mean, you know what? Let's move on. No, I want to state uncategorically that this was horrible. It was absolutely mind-blasting to me that Medvedev was not immediately shown the door yeah, in this match. It's crazy. And it was so bad that Diego Schwartzman called him an idiot. Like, Diego Diego doesn't really have problems with anyone. And after the match, he said, you're a good tennis player, but you have some things to work on personally. And Medvedev yeah. keeps telling us that, yes, I, I agree, <laughs> and I'm going to work on it. 
but yet we are still seeing these regressions. Yeah, get to work, dude. In this event that, in the grand scheme of things, does not mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. So, like, why are we being so out of pocket for this event? Is it bravado? Machismo? What is, what is causing these men to act out of pocket at this event? Uh, so, Alexander Zverev was, I think, another thing entirely. There's a psychodrama going on within his family, within his team. His serve has gone completely off the rails. He unleashed on his dad at one point during a match and brought his father to tears in the stands. And this one, we can't even really laugh at. It, it was just uncomfortable and kind of sad altogether. Yeah. Alex lost to three next-gen guys. Guys that he really has eclipsed as far as achievements and ranking. But uh, this is a tough way to start the year for him. Lost in three sets to Tsitsipas, but then losing easily to Deminar and Shapovalov. Right. And especially in the loss to Dennis... He had no answers. He looked listless. He did not want to be there. And that was a difficult one to watch. The serve was a complete mess. We've known that he's had troubles with the serve in the past. They came back threefold at this event. Yeah. And speculation about whether... He, I think he even copped to it that his off-season preparation was not what it normally is because he was gallivanting with Federer across South right. America and into Central America... Right. For I, that, that exhibition tour. You know, I think players should be able to do whatever they want as far as exhibitions. If they want to go do that and make money, that's awesome. It's not It's not a judgment on them. No, but in this case, it may have interfered with his off-season training block. Mm -hmm. And it's not for us to sit here and say, well, it serves you right because you did that. No. It's more just acknowledging what it is. And I can't imagine what it's like to have that spotlight on you and have this serving issue come back again. Right. And have you looked so amateur on a tennis court, frankly. I'm sure a lot of this was embarrassment for Zverev at this tournament. Right. And finally, Pablo Cuevas engages in some ridiculous antics. He was upset about a, a call, gets a warning for lack of effort, leaves the court, packs up his stuff, and he's ready to forfeit. Like, he's about to walk off court. Basilashvili manages to talk him down and he comes back it's just very strange dude just go again this is the <laughs> atp cup right like i don't understand it's not that serious like if you've walked to your chair you've packed up your stuff and you're walking up the court if i'm the umpire i'm like okay i'm clocking out bye <laughs> over it's over game set match and so yeah like you said basilashvili has to come over right. and I catch him halfway off the court to be like yo dude just chill. Right. Like this is not this is not it. Right. Has just, there, co just come back. Has there ever been a more chill tennis player than Basilashvili? <laughs> <laughs> and so he eventually comes back. I mean, every day that you thought the ATP Cup was out of hand, it escalated. Mm -hmm. The following day. Right. But hey, y'all got a Serbia-Spain final. Congrats. Nadal Djokovic. It went as we expect on hard court. Yes. And Serbia is the winner. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool. On the WTA tour, we mentioned that the women were disadvantaged in court assignments in Brisbane. The tournament carried on. They persisted. 
and uh, Karolina Pliskova retained her title, beating Madison Keys in the final. First of all, Brisbane fielded an incredible array of WTA players. Just an amazing roster. A few things early in the week that were surprising. Danielle Collins got back her Australian mojo, pulverized Alina Svitolina. I think two breadsticks. Yeah, she was baking up a storm right. to start that tournament. Destroyed Yulia Putintseva and surprisingly lost kind of meekly to Madison Keys. I think four and one. Putintseva didn't even have time to get mess started no, in that match. No scams, no theatrics. Collins just destroyed her. If it wasn't one bakery product, it was another. <laughs> so look out for Danielle in Australia. She is uh, a defending semifinalist. Is correct. that correct? I keep forgetting that the come on happened only last year. It seems like a decade ago. Well, we've known of her for uh, maybe, what, almost two years maybe now. Maybe two years. Because she beat Venus in Miami a right. couple of years ago. right. There has been a lot of hand-wringing over whether she's MAGA, if she's safe as a white woman to stand. And you know what? We don't know. The early signs, or the signs to date, say it's it's okay. But you just yes. never know. That's what the signs say. She's but... had a lot of good things to say about the way women are treated in sport. She's spoken about her own experiences in college on the WTA Tour. And that stuff gives me encouragement. And she also takes great, great offense to folks calling her feisty in particular. Yes. Because she says that that is disrespectful. Would you ever refer to Rafael Nadal as feisty or any man on the ATP tour? And she <laughs> is speaking truth. Yeah. The semifinal lineup was Grand Slam quality. Pliskova versus Osaka in one. Keys versus Kvitova in the other. You have your two finalists of the Australian Open from last year in Osaka and Kvitova. And both of them actually were the losing semifinalists. Two three-set matches. Osaka had a match point in the second set against Pliskova. She served for the match. Up a set and a break. Indeed. The thing that I take from Naomi Osaka's week in Brisbane, it's her first foray on the WTA tour with her new coach, Vim Fissette. The serving was on point. She had 50-something aces. She tied her previous career best in aces at 15, which we witnessed when she played Shea Suwe in Cincinnati last year. And she bested that later in the tournament. So she was raining down aces all week. And uh, that that is, that is positive for her. Yeah. Naomi is going to be formidable in Australia no matter what. I felt that she looked to be in great form in the U.S. Open, even though she was injured. That kind of messed up her run there. She's serving well, and if she's feeling confident in Australia, there is really no telling what can happen. Pliskova, though, is the winner, the three-time title winner in Brisbane. Went to three sets against Madison Keys. She knows how to win non-Grand Slam tournaments. That's it. And I don't mean that in a shady way, but Pliskova knows how to win tournaments. She's been incredibly consistent, especially on hard courts for this past year or two. And her ranking is well-earned. And that's all of the nice stuff I'm going to say about her. (laughs) (laughs) Prove to me you can do it at a major. That's it. Okay. In Auckland? In Auckland, you may have heard. 
This is the tournament that we followed a lot last week. Right. For obvious reasons. We'd been talking about it from last year when we learned that Serena Williams was returning to Auckland, the site of her 2017 fiasco. (laughs) Her windswept meltdown against Madison Brangle, during which she was very newly pregnant and didn't know. She acted a damn fool in that Brangle match. Everyone knows that. I think Serena can even admit that now. The fact that this tournament director managed to get her back to Auckland... And she did all these press availabilities. She performed extremely well in this tournament in singles and doubles. This is a lot of credit due to that gentleman. There's this weird thing, this weird dynamic that happens with fans of Serena Williams when it comes to WTA events. In one breath, they've told us historically that they don't matter. That Serena can just show up and win at the slams and that's what matters. She's only previously won one WTA international event in her career. Mm. This was her 73rd WTA title, her second WTA international title. And while folks will diminish the importance of these WTA events, because Serena doesn't have as many of them as other greats, right? She has the slams, the ones that are allegedly really important. We saw that this was actually very important to Serena. It was. Since her comeback from having Olympia in 2018, Serena had made five WTA finals. They were all big events, four of them being Grand Slam finals, twice at Wimbledon, twice at the US Open in back-to-back years, 2018, 2019, and then as well, the final of the Rogers Cup last year, losing all five in straight sets. And so something was afoot with Serena in Mm. finals. And she gets to the final in Auckland this last week, and the start is not great against Jessica Pagula. And if you were sitting at home thinking, well, damn, if Serena's gonna lose another final to Jessica Pagula, then something really is amiss. (laughs) And you would have been right in thinking that. But the thing is, had she lost in the first round to somebody like Pagula, I would have thought like, oh, well, whatever. But in a final, you get this, okay, she's made it to the final, and this is the mental block. And if you were following on Twitter, the army was stressing me out at the first three games. Just everybody calm down. She got it together, and she won quite easily. When your fave is in a final of a professional sporting event, this is a happy occasion. (laughs) I want to remind folks. Right, right. Don't take these for granted. And listen... This tournament clearly meant a lot to Serena, so do not slag it. Do not slander Auckland. It seems like a lovely tournament, and the people who go are extremely happy to be there. It's impeccably run. It Definitely. The trophy ceremony is so alive, so professional. Inclusive. So just rich with New Zealand history. It's lo- it really was lovely. I'm so glad I watched the trophy presentation. Caroline Wozniacki, partnered with her BFF, Serena Williams, made the final of doubles, losing to Taylor Townsend and Asia Muhammad. Taylor Townsend, who I think is primed to to really have a breakout year on this tour. She's been honest about her career. She dropped that bombshell on Behind the Racket that her mom had been stealing her income. 
just buried in this long paragraph. I think Taylor has has really turned over a new leaf and is ready to like bust out big time. Serena and Caroline play doubles together and they get to the final and the entire time, every single one of their matches, it looks like they're playing an exhibition the entire time because mm. they're having so much fun. In that final, Serena and Wozniacki are down a set and a break. They'd just been broken in the second set to go down a break. And on the changeover, they're kicking up a storm. <laughs> they are, Serena is dying at something that Caroline says to her. And good for them for having that experience. It's something that they clearly wanted to do together as friends. Mm-hmm. And they were able to achieve it multiple times over throughout this tournament. Right. I'm happy for Caroline because the Australian is going to be her last tournament as a professional tennis player. This was her final WTA tournament, and she got to go deep in singles and doubles and play with her best friend, Serena. She made the semifinals in singles, losing a third set bagel to Jessica Pagula, which is not what we would have foreseen, but it happened. And then she came back the next day to play the final with Serena and wasn't able to, to win that either. But still, a fun, happy week, I would say, for her. Yeah. Question about Serena before we move on. What do you take from this win in being able to to extrapolate that further toward the upcoming season? I think, I don't know, like, I don't want to get too deep into Serena's psyche here, but there was clearly a mental block about finals that she was having trouble overcoming. I think this will lift something in her mind. It will release a little bit of pressure. I think for some of those finals, fitness was an issue. I know people have said, well, fitness was not an issue in those finals. It was all mental. I think there was a bit of both. More so in 2018. She wasn't digging out of corners. She wasn't as quick as she had been previously. And that's not a criticism. Like, I'm not saying that she should be. It's just the truth. She's 38 years old. 37 at the time. So you're saying now she is as fit as you can expect her to be. She is more fit than she was last year. And I also think winning this match is going to really, really help her going forward. But it's not a it's not a cure-all. You know, you still have to get over that hump in a major, which is very different. And the other thing is that she lost those major finals to high quality opponents. They weren't they weren't nobodies. I will say that she got to that semifinal and she saw visions of the 2004 Wimbledon final across the court yes on the other side of that net and she did not take her foot off of amanda anisimova's throat wow in that match sorry to amanda but serena there was a bit of not wanting to crown another young blonde woman and if you want to rebuke that fine i get it but then also not wanting to crown another American up-and-comer. She's already lost to Sonia Kennan at the French Open. Right. She's already lost to Bianca Andreescu, Canadian, but still North American starlet, if we want to borrow from the parlance of the 80s and 90s. (laughs) (laughs) No, and you know, Serena has a lot of respect for Amanda. She spoke about her at length in press. She has empathy for what Amanda has gone through over the past year. And so I don't think it's sinister, but I think there is an element of, you know... 
I'm tired of of helping these new stars come out. Like, I don't want to be their big win. And right? re- I think this match was a reminder to folks that tennis is about matchups. Yeah. Amanda's game matches up well with what Serena wants to see exactly. on that tennis court. Amanda's game is great. Like, that backhand is the truth. Mm-hmm. But it's there's not a whole lot that's going to hurt Serena because she's seen it. Like, power is not going to hurt Serena. And when folks say, well, why she's struggling against Christina McHale again, maybe Serena just doesn't like that look right. on the tennis court. Clearly. It, it makes sense. Like, mm. there's this stuff isn't always logical or makes sense. It just is. And uh, Serena was able to get through Georgie in straight sets in the first round. She beats McHale in three, losing the first set again to her. She beats Zygmunt in the quarterfinals before blitzing Anisimova and then coming back from a slow start to beat Pagula in straight sets in the finals. So I think, coupled with all the time that she spent on the doubles court throughout that week, we actually saw some pristine volleying, some shockers, but some pristine (laughs) volleying by the end of the tournament. This can only serve her well. Yeah. I don't see anything detrimental to Serena about this weekend. That That can only be good because... She has told us that she is coming for 2020. Yeah. While the ATP Cup was going on, Doha was the only men's event that survived. And look who won. My sleeper fave, Andre Rublev, Ruby, beat Corentin Moutet in the final. You are all upon Ruby. You are Ruby Stan. Oh, I love him. At this point. He won his third title. He's reached his career high number 19 ranking. Uh, Moutet had... A pretty incredible week, beating Tennis Sangren, Milos Raonic, Verdasco, and Vavrinka in the semifinals. Raonic, you may be surprised to hear the name. He was back in Doha. You've written here that he is kind of the forgotten man in Canadian tennis right now. And that's so true. It is. What we will see, I think, for the next two years is a, a rotation of the Canadian number one, whether it be an actual ranking or in the tennis mind's eye yeah right now it's clearly Denis Shapovalov by a country mile Felix was not able to bring his best at all at the ATP Cup he seems to be regressing a little bit still very young Mm -hmm. not the end of the world and Milos is coming back from injury Milos could easily given good health put his hand up again and be the number one for a little while again yeah I would like to take this opportunity Wow, I don't know if I can even get it out. This is this is difficult for me. But a lot of folks actually donated to the GoFundMe with the expressed wish that their dollars could get a 34-year-old Frenchman off the blacklist. Yeah. Out I- of the Body Serve Hall of Shame and back to me, Jonathan Newman speaking his name on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm wait, 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 let me speak. I'm here to tell you that as it turns out, I can be bought. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suspected this about myself, but it, it, I, mm-hmm. I now know this. And Joe Wilfred Sanga, his ban has been lifted. Oh my God, you can still pronounce his name? I can. Like you didn't even forget I, it? I, I can. It, it turns out you you learn things new about yourself every day. Oh, Welcome back, Joe. We love you. Je t'aime. 
well, that is a bit much. Let's take it in baby steps. <laughs> I said je because I. Yeah, but then it. you said we. Yeah, you're right. You would have said we love you if you knew how to say it. That's true. We have waited so long to do our season opener that the Australian Open qualifying has started. We're struggling to keep up with the news. These fires and the resultant smoke in Australia and the major cities in Australia is wreaking havoc on the Australian Open, which, to be clear, is is like the least consequential event that has happened because of these fires. People are literally dying. Yes. They're losing their homes. Wildlife is being destroyed in the millions. This is a disaster of epic proportion. And unfortunately, we don't know what kind of long-term effects this will have on people. We could see respiratory diseases and cancers because of the smoke. Um, hopefully that is at a minimum. But the Australian Open is going on in really under the specter of these fires. I want to say we've had a lot of folks reach out to us or tag us on Twitter Sometimes not in the most nice way, <laughs> but to implore us and others in the tennis community to shed a light on climate change and how that affects tennis. Right. What is our stance on that? Our stance is that that is really important. And for the longest time, I've shied away from it because I, to be honest, like my grasp of this scientifically is very, very basic. So I didn't want to go on air committing to something that I didn't fully understand. Because we, we talk a lot about a lot of social issues. But when we do, we come from a place of not certainty, but of assuredness in what we speak. Right. So we're not going to be here popping off on something that we we don't know the nitty gritty about. That said, it is something that we believe in. We believe that climate change is real. I should hope that that is understood. <laughs> right. But to be fair, as you said, like it is incumbent upon us to be assured about it is. this is to do the research and um, and to understand that climate change is a social and cultural and political and economic issue. How those sociopolitical cultural issues interact with tennis is the ethos of this show. Mm. And so it is incumbent on us to do the work, which is to say, we plan to. Right. Um, I was actually listening to NPR all day today because I was doing fairly tedious work at work and I was able to listen and pay attention. The Australian fire season is normal. Like it, it's a normal part of the ecosystem in Australia to have these fires. Some animals have adapted to and some have actually depended on fires, but they have gone on way, way too long compared to what's normal. And the temperatures and the drought is what is fueling these fires. How that interacts with climate change, I don't fully understand, but we're in a crisis. The major cities have been largely unaffected by the fires themselves, but the air quality in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in Sydney, has been at varying points dangerous. Australian Open qualifying started, and folks have been curious to see how the smoke and the fallout from the wildfires would affect the tennis. This is not, I want to start by saying that this is not something that is unforeseen clearly for Tennis Australia, for the Australian Open. To say that we should have expected them to have 
a contingency plan in place to deal with this situation while foreseen still unusual, that is that is something that we should have expected from them, right? Yeah. You can't be having one of the four biggest tennis tournaments in the world, one of the biggest sporting events in the world that spans two weeks on your soil and not have an emergency preparedness situation planned out for this. Right. But the Australian Open has shown in the very recent past that it is very ill-equipped to deal with weather emergencies. A few years ago, that guy, that doctor, their, their medical expert, trotted out all this bogus sort of evolutionary biology about how we were once hunters on the high plains of Africa and we've adapted to this sort of weather and players basically just need to suck it up and shut up. A few years ago, they trotted out this complicated wet bulb temperature. We took great pains to explain what the wet bulb temperature meant to you. We did a lot of reading on Wikipedia about what that was. And the the Australian Open has not been great about player welfare in these extreme weather situations. And they have proven themselves, perhaps this might be the worst example, is the first day of qualifying. The air quality index in Melbourne was above 200. The city of Melbourne warned its citizens to stay indoors if they could. Keep your pets indoors. It's dangerous to be outside. This is particulate pollution. It can be respirated into your lungs. We don't know the long-term effects if you're outside for a long time. The city was very clear. But by all means, let's play high-level elite professional tennis. The Australian Open has been assuring you for the past few weeks that they have a plan in place, they have indoor courts, it's fine that the air conditioning in the indoor courts will filter the air, everybody's going to be okay. They had players playing outdoors. Dalila Yakupovic had to retire during her first round of qualifying, coughing, having trouble breathing, and what? What did she get? She was up a set and serving to get to a tiebreak. Right. This is somebody ranked, I think, 180 in the world. Advancing through qualifying to get to the singles main draw is a huge deal for a player in her position. And yet, because of the gross negligence of the Australian Open, this happens to her. And so what I want to know, and it's in keeping with what we've talked about on this show ad nauseum for years at this point, what is her recourse? What? What What is it? I don't know. Does she have an HR manager? You work in HR. Is yep. there a James Rogers that she can call? <laughs> no. Is there a union rep that she can get in touch with? Hell no. What is her recourse her own- for putting her body and her long-term health potentially in jeopardy because Tennis Australia right. decided arbitrarily, irresponsibly, that it was okay for players to go ahead and play these qualifying matches. And I want to say, it's not just because we had these sh- these shocking images of Yakupovic bowled over on court that we're making a quote-unquote f- stink or fuss about this. Had nobody had any problems physically on court, while we might not be as incensed about it, it would still be absolutely wrong that this had yeah. happened. I don't know if your question was rhetorical, but her only recourse is to get a lawyer. This and is a this is a lawsuit for me. It should be. What's really strange is that there are some players who are supporting. There are some players who are saying, "Well, why did you play?" 
And I feel... <laughs> Look a pui? Oh what? Wow. What? Wow. Like, the, I'm being charitable by saying you must be simple. Be, because the, alter, the worst case is that you're, you're really... You have no empathy in your heart. Mm-hmm. Because the only explanation is that you're not that smart. Because if you have ever been a player outside the top 50, you realize that qualifying for a Grand Slam and losing in the first round is a massive paycheck and could fund most of your year also as one person are you supposed to say well i'm not playing what does that get you nothing like there's no union there's no collective mentality it's just you withdrawing from a match that says nothing and having somebody with the stature and the ranking and the clout of luca pui tweeting something so irresponsibly only goes to undercut your already tenuous position as somebody ranked 118 in the world like right. are you kidding me like why why did you go on court like wow i mean we've seen a lot of stuff that is just hard to fathom with this mm. issue one of which and we are not in the habit of calling people out by name who work in tennis necessarily but this was easily one of the most incomprehensible things i've ever seen on that website called Twitter. Mark Pecci, former tennis player and current commentator for Amazon, I believe, tweets, not loving today's moral outrage hypocrisy of working conditions. Everyone's so quick to criticize tapping away on their mobile phones and computers, but I bet those same people haven't stopped buying those devices to improve other lives despite these stories. And these stories that he's referring to he uh, he attaches a link to a story where you can meet Dorson, who is eight years old, who mines cobalt to make your smartphone work. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, it is not, it's not a good look to use suffering African children to make a very selfish point about people being hypocritical on Twitter. It's not. Unless you have been doing work to support, to liberate children who are suffering under the yoke of the International Division of Labor, then you're using people as a prop. And it's just, it's extremely ugly. I don't even know what to say. It's, I still can't fully grasp what I read. What is it in in service of? I To defend the Australian I Open? I have no idea. At any rate. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, one of the things that I found most sinister about this tweet was the fact that he actually spoke about working conditions, complaining about the moral outrage about working conditions in tennis, which you don't often hear people in tennis refer to tennis as work. Right. You know, so Mm. that was a whistle for me. Yeah. And (laughs) yes, This is about working conditions in tennis. Tennis players do not have a union. They should have a union. Vashik Pospisil today tweeted that if this is absolutely ridiculous, we we need a union. He tweeted that today. Yeah. And if Jakubovic had a union rep, or if tennis players had a union rep, they could have had negotiations going all along to prevent them from being in this situation, being exposed 
to toxins that we don't know the long-term effects of. That's the whole point of a union. Right. You negotiate working conditions. And why are we in 2020 taking the word and trusting the judgment of a corporation whose sole purpose is to maintain their financial bottom line and trust their judgment in making the decisions about working conditions in tennis when that profit is made off the physical labor, the intense elite level physical labor that they're expecting folks to perform in these tremendously subpar, deleterious, toxic, dangerous environments. Why should Craig Tiley and the Australian Open be the trial judge and jury of this situation? That makes no sense to me. Unions fought these fights for us in the early 20th century, but progress is not linear. We will continue having to fight these fights into the next century. Moving on to uh, not greener pastures. Oh lord, what is this one? Well, we like there is kind of a host of bad news going into the Happy Slam. Uh, some withdrawals. The Happy Slam, we, we know and we've been knowing for years, is just good branding. I mean, I love the Australian Open, but this one has started on a really sour note. I mean, it's been pretty shit for a while. <laughs> <laughs> a few times it was not their fault. The Sangren thing was not their fault. <laughs> but withdrawals. Andreescu was a big surprise to me. Delpo, Gasquet, Azarenka, Andy Murray, Nishikori. All big names, all withdrawn. Yelena Ostapenko announced on Twitter that she lost her dad recently, which is awful. She pulled out of her tournament this week. Uh, We haven't heard about the Australian Open. We assume that she's participating. Arena Sabalenka also revealed that she lost her dad during the offseason. He was only 43 years old. And she's continuing to play. She says she is determined to reach number one because that was her father's dream for her. As you know, Anisimova lost her dad last year. It's just a round of bad news for some WTA players. Some good news is that Margaret Court will not be presenting the women's trophy. But uh, Craig Tiley and the Australian Open went on to say that she will be properly feted, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. To think that all this has happened before the tournament has started and we haven't even had to live through the Margaret Court stuff that's to come. Oh, wait, she must be so excited that this stuff is overshadowing her bad headlines. <laughs> no, I totally disagree. I think she... <laughs> one of the best things for martyrdom is to get that bad press. That's true. Margaret loves she loves attention. It. Yeah. Bad press, good press, it doesn't matter. Today, a few bombshells were dropped by the ITF anti-doping program. Argentinian player Nicolas Jarry tested positive for a SARM, which you might remember from a previous body serve episode, is a selective androgen receptor modulator, something like that. Basically, this is, this is your bag. Yeah, it's an anabolic agent. It enhances the effects of testosterone in the body. Uh, Jarry said he will fight it, but uh, a few years ago the ITF ruled that they would not be doing silent bans anymore. So this is part of that process. Players are forced to make a statement because the ITF is going to release the news regardless. Mm -hmm. 
Blair Henley tweeted today as a reminder that prior to that decision, mm -hmm. there probably were so many tennis players who had silent bans that we just never knew oh, about. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. just how many of them there were? We know Andre Agassi was one of them. Right. In the prime of his second career. And the so the big bombshell today, bigger than Jari, is Robert Farah, the number one doubles player in the world, withdrew from Australia, citing personal reasons earlier. But now it's come out that he tested positive for boldenone, which is an anabolic agent. His defense is that he claims it's common in meat in Colombia, which I know I know you're laughing, but it actually is used sometimes as a growth promoter in meat production. So I'm not I'm not saying that I'm saying if you were to get caught, this is a good one to get caught with as a yes, Colombian. Yes. I'm not saying that he is right, that he is innocent, but it is possible that his story checks out. We shall see. It's a lot easier to defend than a cancer drug that's spilled in the tortellini. Yes. Yes. The other thing, though, is that even if his defense makes sense, it doesn't guarantee that this will be overturned. Like, he could still serve a ban, even if we believe that his defense is legitimate. In the meantime, he'll have lots of free time to thirst trap it up on social media. Stop. <laughs> I'm just saying that that is... That is uh, another aspect yeah. to the Farah experience. Currently, as we record, Tennis Sandgren is playing John Isner in Auckland. Yikes. Who is watching that? Well, I'm following along because if John Isner wins this match, and it will be the only time that I root for John Isner, oh, then God. Tennis Sandgren will be on the outskirts of the ATP Top 100. Because if you recall, he is oh. the defending champion in Auckland. I did not recall, but thank you for reminding me. They've split two tie breaks, and now it's on serving the third mm -hmm. set. So keep an eye out yeah. on that. But, like, who's watching it other than Judge Janine Pirro and Megan Kelly, the heroine <laughs> of Bombshell, Bill O'Reilly? Megan McCain is uh, uh, that very guy, invested. What's his name? Sean Hannity. I'm sure he's watching. Glenn Greenwald and his husband and their 72 dogs in Argentina. I'm sure they're watching. Yeah. <laughs> the savior of the left. Glenn Greenwald. You are doing a bit much right now. I am. Well over an hour into this episode, we will <laughs> we will attempt we'll speed through. to do a 2020 preview. Twenty. I can't. 2020 is Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs. That's it. I'm Barbara Walters, and this is 2020. I, uh, I'm, I'm quite saddened as to how Barbara's later years have gone, mm. to be honest. It seems that she is... Suffering from dementia or some adjacent disease. And she's a recluse at this point, And we we will probably never see her again. That is very For sad. somebody who was yeah. so visible her entire career. Iconic, even. Mm -hmm. It's one of the tests when I meet young people. Because uh, one of the... I mean, I'm a Mariah stan. And one of the things that inevitably comes up is Mariah's interview with Barbara Walters <laughs> about the American Idol experience. <laughs> and when Barbara is asking her... Uh, are you the bitch that she's singing about? <laughs> and Mariah's like, uh, she she sings? I didn't know she sings. I thought she rapped or whatever. 
And to hear Barbara Walters casually and in a serious way ask Mariah about being that bitch. Are you the bitch? It's it's one of the formative lifelong gay experiences. Really. <laughs> and and whenever I meet new people, A, I wanna I ask them, would they inevitably find out that I'm a Mariah Stan and then that comes up? And then I mention Barbara Walters and quite a few times people are like, Who's that? And, and, and I get very offended. That's wild. It's wild. Like, yeah. young people go don't to know YouTube. who Barbara Walters is. She is a trailblazer, for real. Anyway. So let us keep that in mind going forward in 2020. But by way of a 2020 preview, we're going to be very brief. You know we don't like to do predictions. But we did want to kind of throw out a few breakout players mm-hmm. for the coming year. I know you have difficulty with this stuff, so I... I... Put it into categories so it could be easier for you. Oh, thank you so much. So on the WTA and ATP side, we're going to each name a player that we think could have a breakout or comeback season. Right. It doesn't have to be a new player. No. So it's top 50, ranked 51 to 100, and then outside the top 100. Yeah. So we each name six players total, three WTA, three ATP. I'm going to go first. A WTA top 50 player that I think... Stands a good chance of busting out this year. I'm going with one of two players, both American. I think Alison Risk could build even further on her breakout 2019 and go and make the top 10. And I also think Jennifer Brady is one to watch in 2020. Who do you have right. in that in that section? I have Alexandrova. I know this is an easy choice because she just beat Muguruza in Shenzhen and she won the title. This, Fascinating. This young woman has been coming up for... A little while, about a year, I think she's poised to make a big splash. Mm-hmm. You really reached for that one. Shut up. <laughs> Allison Risk in the top 10? Really? Yeah. That is a, I mean, that's an, a legitimate reach. Marriage works. <laughs> you keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, the 51 to 100 player. I have Iga Świątek, which is not a reach, I don't think. She's right. 18 years old. She's from Poland. She had a breakout-ish or breakout-adjacent year last year, and her future just seems seems bright. I was only surprised because I thought she was already in the top 50. I think she's just outside. Okay. Maybe in the 60s, if I recall. My pick for that bracket is Marie Boskova, who had that outrageous performance in Toronto, losing to Serena Williams in the semifinals there. She was going to be my other pick. Oh. Mm-hmm. And Dasha Kazatkina. Who As a comeback. Is, has to make a comeback. I know that some people find her boring. I rather enjoy her game and her personality. May she come back. Just do not play Venus Williams in 2020. I cannot <laughs> deal with another of those right, matches. Right, right, A player outside of the top 100. I'm going with Katie McNally. And I know right, that right. uh, we are a little bit hesitant to uh, <laughs> be in the vicinity yeah. uh-huh. of Miss McNally because of her well, we don't chagrin. Know. We don't know. She expressed chagrin at not being able to meet the president uh, while she was right. in D.C. I do hope that was sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, she gave a great account of herself against Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, and uh, her talent is undeniable. 
I'm struggling here to not try and speak in Moira Rose tone. <laughs> yes. You as I make my way through Shit's Creek right yeah. now because I'm just in love and enamored with the way she like what a choice that she made in that role. Indeed. It's Catherine O'Hara is is a gift from God because she pronounced a lot of things in ways that Jamaicans would. She really? pronounces her T's all the time. <laughs> there is not a T that Jamaicans will not pronounce. <laughs> I told you that you need to stick with it because the seasons build upon themselves yeah. and create like this community, this this universe that you want to be a part of. It's so much like like The Simpsons or Cheers in that way. Because you grow to really care about these mm-hmm. people. I started watching it first, and I watched like two or three episodes, and I was like, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I mm. can. And then you found it and sped through it, and I've watched a couple episodes here or there in my linear rewatch right now, or while well, I guess watch for the first time. I've I've had to skip like maybe five or six episodes because I've seen them. Yeah. And so to your point, yes, the cumulative effect is is real. And it, it helps with the show. But I also think that the first two seasons weren't weren't their best. No, it improved a lot. Like season three, the finale was outstanding. Mm. And once Patrick was introduced into that show... Hook, line, and sinker. My God. <laughs> <laughs> my Lord. No, but it's, it's similar to Mary Tyler Moore's show like that as well. Because Mary Tyler Moore benefits from having that that experience of watching all the seasons because you gain this incredible empathy for all the characters. Like you understand their world. Ugh, Mary Tyler Moore invented that. I want to get that on tape. Shall we get back to the business at hand? But rest in peace, Mary Tyler Moore, a genius. ATP breakout slash comeback situation. The top 50 player that I've got going is not a revolutionary pick. It's Mr. Urkacz. A popular yep. pick, I yep. would think, in 2020. For the top 50, I'm picking Kasper Rudd, who is currently at his career high of number 46. Uh, 51 to 100. I'm going with Remember My Name. <laughs> Mr. Yoshihito Nishioka gave a fabulous account of himself at the ATP Cup. Pushed Nadal like, like, whoa. Mm. And I think, and I hope, because he is so good for a mostly barren and depressing ATP personality landscape, (laughs) I'm pushing that he can be a savior. All right. I've picked uh, Michael Emer, because it's time. It's time. Yeah, it is about time. And the outside of the top 100 player. Who Who you you got? got? I have... The Indian players, Gunaswaran and Samit Nagal. Because, Mm -hmm. you know what? I want one of these guys to bust out. I learned a lot about Prajnesh Gunaswaran when we did our book report. Mm -hmm. Samit Nagal acquitted himself very well at the U.S. Open. And I'm ready. I think these guys are poised. I've got Jay Clark. And I've also got Vashik Pospisil, who I think is... he's, He's coming back. Given health, I think that's a certainty in 2020. Yeah. This this business of WTA wishlist and ATP wishlist that we have on this agenda, quickly, what are the things right. that 
would be on your 2020 list? Mm. I mean, you had would, you had time to sure, sit with. This. I did. I would love Serena Williams to win the calendar year Grand Slam. Lord, shoot for the stars! <laughs> why don't you? It's a wish list. I don't. I don't think it's likely. But How about we start on a. I guess maybe some would say this would be an even harder task, but Venus winning number 50. I would, yes. I would, okay. My biggest, let's say my top three wishes are Serena to get to 24 and 25. That means she would have to win two majors this year. Naomi Osaka to win another slam. And Venus Williams to rejoin the top five. The top five the top in the five. rankings. In the rankings. Top five. The top five in the rankings. Yes. I want Venus to prove to these young gals that she is not to be messed with. It's a wish list. It's it's bold. It is. It's bold. And uh, what I struggle with with Venus at this point is this this push and pull between ruining the 2017 season and the missed opportunities and also feeling that we were gifted so much Yeah. when yeah. we thought it was all over. And so how can I sit here and feel such pain and agony for thinking through Sloane Stevens's backhand up the line in that semifinal <laughs> and thinking, oh, that's terrible. When Venus made two slam finals, a slam semifinal, and the WTA Championships final in that year was a top five player. Like, that is, that is wild. It's wild by any metric. And so to think that three years later, I should expect that or more of her again... As James Ingram would say, I don't have the heart. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm just here hoping that we have a few or a handful of cute moments. I know for Venus, one of the things that's highest on her list is making the Olympics. She's currently the ninth highest ranked American women's player on that qualification list. I think Jennifer Brady just passed her. Mm. This is a dire situation for her to qualify in time. Yeah. And so for me, a cute 50th title would be sufficient for me. All right. On the men's side, anything on a wish list? You know, I wish they would all work out their mental problems. Stop beating on their daddies. You're saying they've got daddy issues. Indeed. Mm. Yeah. So let's let's let... Apostolos and Alexander Sr. leave an event unscathed, physically and emotionally. You know the gays do that well. They deal with their daddy issues very well. (laughs) (laughs) No, but really, on a selfish note, I would love to see Nadal win another slam off clay. I would love to see one of these next-gen guys take the next step. and And what? Well... In order to be seen as really legitimate, to snatch it from one of the goats. So you want one of these guys to play a goat in the final and whoop him. Yes. Preferably, of, a, of a grand slam. Preferably not Rafa. But, you know, if it is, so be it. Should this come to pass with Dominic Team at the French Open? <laughs> no, excuse me. I'm just saying. No, I'm just saying. That's not in the equation. I'm just saying. Should that come to pass, I want you all to remind Mr. No, no, Rogers no, no. That's, here. That's not what I mean. Mr. Rogers in the neighborhood <laughs> that he spoke this into existence. N- not that though. Mm. 
for me, my ATP wish list is for the men on the ATP to encroach less on the space that women have in tennis and also for the men to act less of fools on the ATP tour. The ATP Cup was a poor start in that regard, and I hope that the rest of 2020 can be a course correction, that they can all collectively look themselves in the mirror and make a change for once in their lives. (laughs) I feel like that was a song. Venus re-entering the top five is way more likely than that, by (laughs) the way. That is true. (laughs) That is true. With that, let's sign off. This has become a very long episode. We'll be with you in just a few days for our Australian Open It's fine. I'll just edit most of the stuff you said. Uh, Yes, most of me. (laughs) Fine. But the Australian Open draw is going to come out in a mere days. So you'll have a lot of body surf to deal with. Yeah, yeah. We will be here. Please heed our instructions. If you qualify for a postcard, give us your address. If you don't mind us knowing where you live, we want to send that to you. The GoFundMe is still active. and there's There have been people who've reached out and told us that we're glad that you left it running after you hit the, the goal because I didn't have a chance to, to donate. If you're in that position as well, it's still open. We are still welcoming donations we're just not advertising it on social media you can find it it's still our pinned tweet on both of our personal uh twitters as well as the body serve twitter and if you i mean just google uh the body serve and gofundme you'll find it as well yeah we are on spotify overcast apple podcasts all the typical podcast apps you might use we're on twitter at the body serve i'm james i'm at elliot jmr on twitter Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. One final note about the GoFundMe. We have shout outs to give to to everybody who donated to the GoFundMe. And we will be doing that starting at the end of the the period once, once it closes. So after the Australian Open, we'll start shouting people out on the show with the caveat that if you donated privately, we take that as a sign that you do not want your name to be known publicly and that's fine we just will not we just want you to know that we will not be calling your name on air right that includes you coco vandaway <laughs> thanks for listening till next time thank, thank you. you thank you very much